It's the 1470s, and Leonardo da Vinci is hiking alone in the hills of central Italy when he chances upon an enormous cave. It's unmarked, and there are no signs of human habitation anywhere. It's apparently undiscovered. He later wrote in his journal what he felt at the time. Suddenly there arose in me two contrary emotions, fear and desire. Fear of the threatening dark cave and desire to see whether there were any marvelous things within. He stands in front of the cave for a long time, bending back and forth to see if he can maybe make out even a faint outline of something inside. But it's too dark. He can't see anything. He's got a decision to make. Does he risk going into the cave and seeing what's inside? Or does he continue on with his day? But he already knows what he'll decide because Leonardo da Vinci always chooses satisfying his curiosity over everything else. He enters the cave, and the reward for following that curiosity is that he discovers in the walls a fossilized skeleton of a whale. The historian Kenneth Clark calls da Vinci the most relentlessly curious man in history. And I have to agree, when you read enough of these biographies, you start to see certain archetypes, certain types of people. But I think da Vinci is a one of one. I've never seen or read about a mind like his ever, anywhere. You're probably not wired like da Vinci. And that's okay, I'm not. I don't know anyone that is. But I think anyone can learn how to be more curious by learning from his example. And curiosity, as it turns out, is a superpower. Da Vinci is widely regarded as one of the greatest artists of all time, if not the greatest artist. He painted what are probably the two most famous paintings of all time in the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper, and his sketch of the Vitruvian Man could also probably go down on the list of most famous artworks. He was a shockingly insightful amateur scientist. When reading through the excellent biography of da Vinci by Walter Isaacson, I was struck by how often you read the phrase, which wouldn't be replicated for another 100 years or 200 years, or even sometimes 300 years. He made observations about physics, biology, engineering, and material sciences that would literally take centuries to replicate. He was also a tinkerer, an amateur inventor who came up with a number of useful inventions and laid the groundwork for even more. Steve Jobs said of da Vinci, he saw beauty in both art and engineering, and his ability to combine them was what made him a genius. We hear a lot about the power of standing at the intersection of art and science, and how that's where innovation comes from. But few people actually do it. And da Vinci did. And he did it like no one before and no one since. So this is an episode on how to actually do it, how to combine art and science to become a great innovator. So let's get into it. This is part one on the life of Leonardo da Vinci. Welcome to How to Take Over the World. I'm going to show you how great I am. This was our tiny tower. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Leonardo da Vinci was a bastard. I mean that literally. His father was a minor nobleman from Vinci, a small town outside of Florence and his mother was a 15-year-old orphan. Da Vinci wasn't even a last name. Da Vinci just means from Vinci. Luckily for him, Renaissance Italy has been described as a golden age for bastards. In Florence especially, the culture was quite accepting of weirdness generally, and bastards in particular. In fact, I would say that it was even weirdly accepting of the practice. At the time of Leonardo's birth, his father, Piero, 
was engaged to be married to a woman from a very prominent Florentine family. And yet, when Leonardo was baptized at one day old, the whole Da Vinci family showed up to the baptism and made a proper party out of it, apparently feeling no guilt, no embarrassment, no shame. If nothing else, you would probably think they would sweep it under the rug for the sake of the poor Florentine girl who Piero was scheduled to marry in a matter of weeks. But no, they were quite proud of this illegitimate child. In fact, not only was illegitimacy not a problem for Leonardo, I think you can make the case, I would make the case, that it helped him. As I said, Leonardo was very curious, even as a boy. He was extremely bright, and his talent as an artist was apparent from a very, very young age. But today we might call him ADD. He had a lot of trouble focusing, completing tasks, and focusing on anything that did not capture his interest completely. If he had been a legitimate child of Piero, he would have been expected to take up his father's trade as a notary. And Renaissance notaries were different than what we might think of today. They were essentially lawyers. It was a very prestigious occupation that could make you quite wealthy. But Leonardo would not have been a good notary because of his distractibility. And so the fact that he was illegitimate allowed him to explore the possibility of other careers. Additionally, if he had been a legitimate child of Piero, he would have received a classical education studying Greek and Latin from a young age. Instead, he was allowed to have a carefree childhood, exploring the Tuscan countryside, letting his imagination run wild, and learning by experimentation and observation. The only formal schooling he received was a couple of years in an abacus school, which was a school designed to teach young Florentines the rudimentary math required to engage in commerce. So counting, adding, subtracting, things like that. He also received some informal education, as you might imagine. He was, of course, taught how to read and write at home. At 12 years old, he moved from the small town of Vinci to Florence with his father. He later wrote in his journal how much he missed the countryside, the animals, the plants that he had come to love. But at the same time, he was thrilled by the intellectual scene of Florence. This is the peak of the Renaissance in Florence. It's an explosion of knowledge, culture, and art. There are a lot of reasons for this. One of the biggest ones is the printing press, which was invented the year that Leonardo was born. With the advent of the printing press, information could be disseminated at a fraction of the cost that it previously had. Another reason for the Renaissance was the fall of Constantinople. Constantinople had been one of the great centers of Christian learning. It was a cosmopolitan city where people from Europe, Asia, and Africa came together to trade and learn. For more than a thousand years, it had been one of the great cities of the world, and it would continue to be so for hundreds of years more. But when Muslims conquered the city in 1453, many Christian scholars decided that they might be better off under Christian rule in Western Europe. So they abandoned Constantinople and came to places like Florence, bringing their knowledge with them, as well as a vast trove of books and manuscripts. So these two things happened at almost exactly the same time, the fall of Constantinople on the one hand and the invention of the printing press on the other. And so it's like, if you can imagine, two waves in the ocean and they crest at the same time on top of each other, creating this massive tidal wave. That's what you have at this time, a tidal wave of new information. And so it leads to an explosion of innovations in Western Europe in science, engineering, medicine, art, commerce, technology, you name it. And Florence is the epicenter of all of this because it was the richest city in Europe. It was one of the great centers of industry and commerce. Its merchants were very wealthy, and they loved to show off that wealth by patronizing the arts. So when Leonardo first came to Florence as a young man, he stepped right into the middle of all of this. He would have heard the whirring and clacking of weaver shops. The textile industry was the biggest industry in the world, and it was centered in Florence. He would have heard the hammers and furnaces of goldsmith shops, the bustle of wagons and carts carrying goods to and from the markets, 
The music of street performers, the shouts and hurried conversations of merchants like the Medici's trading in the markets, and the smells of street vendors selling food. It was the New York City of its time. It was a place where everything was happening, commercially and artistically. It couldn't have been more different from the tiny town of Vinci, where Leonardo had grown up. And I imagine it must have been very overwhelming for him. In fact, some of his writings suggest that it was. But at the same time, it was very exciting. Now, at first, Leonardo was just living with his father, presumably helping him with odd jobs and tasks related to the notary business. But his father writes of him at this time that he never ceases drawing and sculpting. So Leonardo has this obsession at a young age. So his father shows some of his drawings to a notable local artist named Andrea del Verrocchio. Verrocchio is very impressed by what he sees and takes the boy on as an apprentice at age 17. Now, this apprenticeship is interesting because it defies many of the stereotypes that we might have about great artists. First of all, the environment is not self-serious and ponderous. It's more like a commercial shop than a fine art studio. There's a workroom on the ground floor open to the street where they are mass producing products from easels, kilns, pottery wheels, and metal grinders. These aren't artistes. It's a bunch of crazy young men. It's a bunch of lads, as they might say in England, who are joking around, having a good time, making money, and also experimenting, exploring their craft, one-upping each other, competing, collaborating on how to create better and better art. It's an environment that reminds me a lot of the Silicon Valley of the 1970s or of Thomas Edison and his traveling telegraph operators in the latter half of the 19th century. Leonardo found it to be an ideal environment. He later wrote, drawing in company is much better than drawing alone. And I think that's true of many pursuits. I think in the age of remote work, too many of us are doing creative work alone. Maybe it's not just drawing that's better done in company. Maybe other creative skills as well, maybe writing, composing, graphic design are also much better in company than alone. Now, again, this is kind of a, a factory. They're churning out mass-produced work for the most part. They also do uh, some very impressive commissions of, of very fine art. But a lot of what Leonardo is doing uh, is mass-produced art. Despite that, it's not long before Verrocchio notices how gifted Leonardo is. It's during this time that he begins pioneering two new approaches. The first is called chiascuro, which means light and dark. Essentially, this is the practice of adding black pigments to create shadows. And this allowed Leonardo to much more realistically depict the effect of light and shading on a subject. The other innovation was something called sfumato, which is based on the word sfumo, smoke. Leonardo, with his keen power of observation, noticed that in real life, we hardly ever actually see hard lines on objects. Rather, we see soft lines and shaded contours. So he wrote about this technique, your shadows and lights should be blended without lines or borders in the manner of smoke losing itself in the air. And that's where we get the word sfumato. The best way to understand this is to Google a painting called The Baptism of Christ by Da Vinci. This is a painting done actually by Verrocchio and Da Vinci together. On the right side, you can see John the Baptist, whose body was painted by Verrocchio. Look at the leg. It's painted accurately with lots of details. It's well done. It's much better than I could do painting a leg. But you'll see how it's painted with hard lines to show the muscles. Now, look at the body of Jesus on the left, which was painted by Da Vinci. Look at the leg and how he uses sfumato. He has rendered it much more realistically. The leg doesn't have hard lines, but subtle shading differentiates the various muscles in the leg, which gives a much more realistic effect. The technique in this painting was so ahead of its time that supposedly after the baptism of Christ, Verrocchio vows never to paint again. And it appears he never did. 
he never did another painting commission on his own. So think about that. Verrocchio is a famous painter in his own right, with many notable pupils, and he's only 40. He's not old. But the pupil had so thoroughly outpaced the master that Verrocchio can only look at Leonardo and marvel. He thought that once he's seen a master like Leonardo at work, the right thing was to leave the painting to a genius like him. Now, why was Leonardo so focused on these new techniques? He wrote that the first intention of the painter was to make a flat surface display a body as if modeled and separated from this plane. So in other words, the first purpose of a painter is to render objects realistically, to make them appear three-dimensional on a two-dimensional plane. In that way, Da Vinci reminds me a lot of Pixar. He's kind of the Pixar of his time. Remember, Pixar started out as a technology company focused on uh, the computing, the technical problem of rendering 3D animations, and only later became a studio that produced movies. Both Da Vinci and Pixar were consumed with the same problem, with how to render three-dimensional objects on a two-dimensional surface. The only difference was that Pixar's objects moved. They were animated. So like Pixar, Da Vinci is focused on this technical problem, but also like Pixar, he wasn't just focused on the technical problem um, and not for its own sake. He was focused on it because it allowed him to communicate more effectively through his art. He could better display movement and emotion and story by painting more realistically. It's an interesting paradox that those who are focused on the technical details of their craft are often those who create the most transcendent art. It's maybe a little counterintuitive. There's a, a famous quote from Pablo Picasso. When art critics get together, they talk about form and structure and meaning. When artists get together, they talk about where you can buy cheap turpentine. That's a substance used in paint. And for whatever reason, the artists are the people who actually create the form and the structure and the meaning, right? The people who talk about where to buy cheap turpentine end up creating better form and transcendent art than people who talk about the transcendence of art. And so again, that's true of Da Vinci and his contemporaries as well. Like I said, they're a bunch of lads. They're thinking about the technical details. They're thinking about where to get cheap turpentine. They're thinking about how to mix different paints, sfumato, chiascuro, all these different techniques. You know, they're, they're a bunch of nerds nerding out about how to create three-dimensional images, but at the same time, they are creating these transcendental, amazing, beautiful, moving pieces of art. And in this pursuit, it's not just chiascuro and sfumato that da Vinci is using. He's also pioneering uh, new materials. So instead of using traditional egg-based paints, he's coming up with new oil-based paints that are more translucent so he can paint many, many layers uh, that are somewhat transparent in order to create a feeling of depth and three-dimensionality. He's also carefully studying perspective and optics. He observed how objects looked different at different distances with different backgrounds in different environments from different heights and angles so that he could paint them uh, more realistically. Now, uh, we should also talk about Leonardo's personal life at this time as a young man uh, in his late teens and early 20s in Florence. Everything about Leonardo was weird. He was illegitimate. He was left-handed. He was a vegetarian because he was a great lover of animals and didn't want them harmed. He dressed differently. He wore a rose-colored tunic that came to the knees where uh, most people wore long tunics that went to the ground. Again, this is another commonality he has. If you remember, Caesar wears his uh, long togas with fringe, so he dresses slightly different than everyone else. Uh, of course, Steve Jobs has his turtlenecks. Um, 
great people tend to do this and Leonardo did as well. He had a slightly different way of dressing. And in addition to all of these things that were different about him, his sexuality was different. So in 1476, at age 24, he was accused of engaging in sodomy with a male prostitute along with three other young men. The charges were dismissed, probably because one of the accused was related to the Medicis, who were the most powerful family in Florence at the time. But it, that certainly doesn't prove that the incident never happened. Um, Florence at the time was much more tolerant of homosexuality than most other times and places in Europe's history. But even that had its limits. And the accusation seemed to have left an impression on Leonardo, who went into a little bit of a funk. Around that time, he wrote in one of his notebooks, If there is no love, what then? Of course, uh, just because there was an accusation, that doesn't mean we can be sure of Leonardo's sexuality. And applying terms like gay to the past can be anachronistic because people approached sexuality differently. Uh, they didn't divide it into binaries of you know, gay, straight, bisexual, transgender, anything like that. Uh, these are all kind of modern inventions. But there are reasons to believe that he preferred male companionship, uh, may have even been gay or homosexual, as we would define it today. Uh, he never pursued a physical or romantic relationship with a woman. Throughout his career, he had a habit of painting androgynous-looking figures. And while he was obviously interested in the male figure and drew many male nudes, he did not have a corresponding interest in the female figure. In the one nude of a woman that he sketched, uh, the, the genitalia looked dark and scary. And uh, this is funny because he was extremely smart and extremely accurate about how he painted the human body. But um, the uh, female reproductive organs in, in the one biological sketch he does of a woman are wildly incorrect. So I'm not trying to play Sigmund Freud here, but it does seem likely that he at least had some homosexual proclivities. These anonymous accusations may have contributed to da Vinci's decision to eventually leave Florence in 1482, although there was another even bigger reason, and that was that he left Verrocchio's workshop to try and start his own workshop, as would be expected from someone with his level of talent. But he was so unfocused and such a perfectionist that he could rarely ever actually finish any of his commissions, any of the things he was hired to do. Soon, He's got would-be clients hounding him to finish their paintings. Da Vinci, of course, wanted to finish the commissions and frankly needed the money, but he hated working on anything that didn't completely fascinate him. And what fascinated him was learning. Generally, he had really high energy when a commission was started, and he was figuring out the concept of the painting and the hurdles that would need to be tackled in order to make it look realistic. How are we gonna depict this? How am I gonna show off some of the things I've been learning? But once solid progress was made and he was sure he'd figured out, you know, the problem of how he was going to portray this stuff and he was sure, okay, this is how I'm going to do it. And he, he had it all figured out. Then he'd lose interest because he wasn't learning anymore. He was just, you know, completing. He also hated finishing works because he hated imperfection. So there's this example of this painting that he does around this time. And uh, the neck muscles are correct. Uh, there's this muscle on the side of his neck that divides in two. And you wouldn't know that unless you had really carefully dissected and studied a human body that when you turn your neck at a certain angle, uh, you can kind of see the muscle divide in two. And um, so people think, wow, how did he know this? He hadn't really figured this out yet. And it turns out through careful analysis, they, they found out that he went back to this painting 
like 30 or 40 years later in order to correct the neck muscles based on what he had learned in a dissection 30 years later. And so he, that's what a level of perfectionist he was, that he will revisit a painting that was done decades ago in order to make sure that the neck looks exactly true to life. So it's impressive. But this inability to finish works and the subsequent pressure from his clients sent him into a pretty severe depression at this time in his life. He wrote in his notebook at the time, tell me if anything was ever done. Tell me, tell me. While I thought that I was learning how to live, I have been learning how to die. Well, in 1482, da Vinci turns 30 and decides to leave Florence. He was already an innovator and a recognized genius, but a remarkably unaccomplished one. All he had to show for his effort were some contributions to paintings he did jointly with Verrocchio, a couple of unfinished would-be masterpieces, and one undelivered portrait of a young woman. And this is not the Mona Lisa, by the way. This is, this is another portrait of a young woman. Luckily, he would soon have the chance to start over, and that's because he's going to go to Milan. He was actually sent from Florence to Milan as a diplomatic gift to the Duke of Milan, the ruler there. Florence had commissioned a new type of lyre, which is a stringed musical instrument, and they sent Leonardo, who was a very gifted musician, to deliver this lyre as a gift and play it for the Duke of Milan. The trip from Florence to Milan was 180 miles long, which da Vinci knew because he developed a wooden odometer that made a mark with every turn of the wheel in order to track the length of the journey. When he gets there, after he delivers the lyre to the Duke, he writes a letter to the Duke of Milan to offer his services. He's a little burned out on being a painter, so he really pitches himself as an inventor and a military engineer. He says that he can design bridges, fortifications, siege weapons, canals, waterworks, public buildings, and more. And in this letter to the Duke of Milan, he's listing out all these different things that he can do. And of course, you know, he's a, the real Renaissance man. He can do all these things. And then he throws in at the end, oh yeah, I can also paint. He puts it at the very end. He, this is what he literally says. He says, likewise in painting, I can do everything possible as well as any other man, whosoever he may be. So literally he's saying, by the way, I'm also the best painter in the world, which is a great flex. Luckily, he is hired by the Duke of Milan. He never does make much use of his supposed skills in military engineering, but he produces pageants and theatrical performances. He plays the lyre, writes, and paints for the court of the Duke of Milan. Pageants were a much better medium for Leonardo than painting, and that's because they had deadlines, like it actually had to happen, and therefore it kind of forced him to finish things. He was apparently exceptional as a producer. It's a shame that these productions are, you know, they're ephemeral. They're essentially lost to time, but we can tell through some of the materials that have survived that he put the same level of detail and interest into these things as he did into his paintings. In one play, there was a bird that flew through the scene. And in a normal play, you maybe get a little fake bird and you put it on a string and you fly it through the scene. But Da Vinci is not your normal person. He spends countless hours studying birds and their wings to find out exactly how they moved and at what speed and he created an extremely realistic mechanical bird that flapped its wings uh, in a very realistic way. And so this is a lot of what he's doing. It's very important to the Duke of Milan. Actually, these big pageants and plays are one of the big ways that he entertains the masses in his territory and keeps them satisfied with his rule. But even these pageants weren't enough for Leonardo. One of the reasons for being in Milan 
is that it was a larger city than Florence and had a more diverse set of intellectual pursuits. Whereas Florence was the center of commerce and art, yes, Milan was not as commercially important or as artistically impressive, but it had more experts in fields like science, literature, medicine, and military engineering, so it's more varied intellectually. Leonardo had always been a doodler and a note-taker, but it's in Milan that he starts keeping his famous notebooks. The notebooks of Leonardo are incredible. He actually didn't publish any of his scientific discoveries and observations in his lifetime, so it's only through these notebooks that we get a glimpse of Leonardo's true genius. And we only get a glimpse. Uh, today, we have about a quarter of the notes that he actually took at the time. In his notebooks, we see him propose an armored, human-powered, what can only be described as a tank. We see him propose a flying machine, a telescope, siege weapons, waterworks, a machine gun-like rotating cannon, a helicopter, scuba-like diving equipment, and much more. We also see quirky observations from everyday life, such as the fact that a dragonfly's back wings go down when his front wings go up and vice versa. Now think of the level of observation you would have to do in order to notice that. We also see profound scientific discoveries. His realization that blood swirls and eddies in the heart wouldn't be confirmed until the 21st century. Leonardo dissected bodies and used the findings from these dissections to make the most accurate diagrams of the human body ever created to that point. It would take hundreds of years before they were again matched. What comes through in these notebooks is his curiosity and the probing nature of his brain. On one page, you'll have... You know, in one corner, a groundbreaking diagram of the heart, and then in another corner, a doodle of a tree, and then in the middle, maybe a shopping list and some notes on what's happening in his life. You'll have the design for a new musical instrument, and next to it, a riddle and a journal entry. Leonardo is truly letting his curiosity run wild. Now, all this has to be caveated with the fact that he really only had one or two inventions that ever actually made it out of his brain and into the real world. And that's still impressive. I mean, if your obituary said that you were the greatest artist of your generation and you invented the wheel lock, which is something he actually did invent, which was an important innovation in the science of warfare, I think you would consider that a very successful life. You know, great artist, and he had a couple of little inventions. But when you read through his journals, it becomes clear that he had so much more to contribute than he actually did. The reason that he didn't contribute more inventions and scientific discoveries was he didn't have to. He loved learning for learning's sake. In the field of art, commissions forced him to sometimes, sometimes complete his work. But the fact that no one was paying him to do these military innovations meant that for the most part, they never made it into the real world. So in that way, we see that constraints actually helped Leonardo. He hated them, but they were good for his legacy. So we will hear about two of the masterpieces that he actually did finish after this brief break to hear a word from our sponsors. The two great masterpieces that da Vinci did finish during his first stint in Milan were The Vitruvian Man and The Last Supper. Now, The Vitruvian Man was not supposed to be a work of art. It's actually just a sketch, and it was born from a conversation he was having with some of his friends. Leonardo had lots of friends. He was very popular. He was handsome, well-built and proportioned, generous, funny. He was open with others. He shared his learning a lot. Uh, one friend he made was an architect and polymath from Siena named Francesco de Giorgio. Giorgio and da Vinci traveled together to meet a scholar named Poggio 
Bracciolini, who had recently translated the works of a Roman statesman and architect who lived in the first century BC named Vitruvian. So Vitruvian is this ancient Roman who mostly wrote on architecture, but he had a long passage about human proportions and their relation to one another. It demonstrated that ideal, aesthetically pleasing bodies were defined by certain set proportions. And so uh, after meeting with Bracciolini, this translator, uh, and reading his translation of Vitruvius, Giorgio and Leonardo, along with another one of their friends named Giacomo Andrea, set about trying to diagram the proportions laid out by Vitruvius. Okay, so uh, that was a lot of names. I'll just go through that again. Vitruvius is the ancient Roman who originally tried to figure out the ideal proportions of a human body. Bracciolini is the one who rediscovered Vitruvius's work 1,500 years later and translated him from Latin to Italian. So Vitruvius, Bracciolini translates him. And then Giorgio and Andrea are Leonardo's friends who are researching this stuff with him and learning about Vitruvius's proportions with him. Giorgio and Andrea made their own attempts at diagramming the proportions set out by Vitruvius. And while they are impressive, I mean, if I had done it, I'd be impressed by it. More than anything, these illustrations serve to highlight the brilliance of Leonardo's Vitruvian man. Because for one thing, his is more scientifically correct than the others. The body looks more natural, the proportions are more correct. But not only that, it's rendered more beautifully. It's, it's a better piece of art. The man is fully sketched out with proper shading. Um, it's a very interesting body, an interesting face. There's a feeling of gravity and transcendence to Leonardo's Vitruvian man. Walter Isaacson describes uh, Leonardo's Vitruvian man as the ultimate symbol of the intersection of art and science. And it is that. It's also a symbol of the Renaissance, of the beauty of the human body, of the reasoning capacity of man, and so much more. I think it demonstrates the genius of Leonardo maybe more than anything else he's done. And it wasn't even designed to be a work of art. It was a sketch in a personal notebook created for no other reason than to satisfy his personal curiosity. I mean, can you imagine that? How amazing of an artist you would have to be for a glorified sketchbook doodle to become one of the great artistic works of all time. It just shows you what a genius he was, what an unbelievable genius Leonardo was. His other masterpiece from this time was The Last Supper. Now, The Last Supper is a masterpiece in every sense of the word. For years, he had studied perspective and geometry in order to properly be able to paint scenes with depth. And The Last Supper was a masterpiece in creating this depth perception. He was also able to use sfumato and chiascuro to create the sensation of movement and emotion. The painting depicts the moment when Jesus has just told his apostles that one of them will betray him. His apostles appear to be in motion, talking, sulking, and gesturing with their hands to convey their feelings. When you look at it, it feels like it's just happened. You're, you're there in the moment right after Jesus has said that one of them will betray him. Now, I love the story of how he actually painted it. Uh, a contemporary wrote that he would, this is a quote, come here in the early hours of the morning and mount the scaffolding and then remain there, brush in hand, from sunrise to sunset, forgetting to eat or drink, painting continually. Okay, so he's describing um, him just being there all day painting. But then he goes on to say that on other days, Leonardo would show up, stare at the painting for a while, and then leave 
without touching the brush in a whole day. It reminds me of the chapter in the Almanac of Naval Ravikant. Naval is this uh, entrepreneur. He's like the guru of Silicon Valley. And uh, in this chapter, Naval talks about working like a lion and not like a cow. Because cows are walking around. They're chewing grass all day. They're always kind of working. The lions mostly don't work. They mostly rest and recharge. And then they sprint and take down a gazelle and eat it. And he says that it's better to work like a lion. Uh, to take long periods of rest. And then when you're interested in something, work really, really intensely and work really, really hard for a short period of time. And that's what Leonardo does. He works like a lion. Sometimes he works furiously and then other times he doesn't work at all. There's this guy, Vasari, who was a biographer of great artists in the 1500s. So he was a near contemporary with Leonardo. And he wrote about Leonardo uh, and this habit. He wrote, Men of lofty genius sometimes accomplish the most when they work the least. I love that. Men of genius sometimes accomplish the most when they work the least. He goes on, seeking out inventions with the mind and forming those perfected ideas, which the hands afterwards express and reproduce from the images already conceived in the brain. And I think that's true in many different fields. You have to take time away to think. Men of genius sometimes accomplish the most when they work the least. And for all of you that complain that episodes don't come out fast enough, that's my response from now on. Men of genius sometimes accomplish the most when they work the least, so sorry. Okay, well, all this happens in Milan um, in the 1480s and 1490s, but in 1500, the French invade and take over Milan, and Leonardo has to flee for his life. So we will take over from there in part two, but I wanted to highlight a few things that I learned or took away from studying the life of Leonardo da Vinci. The first is to strive to be more curious. That's the very obvious takeaway. Challenge your assumptions. Try to figure out how things work. I don't think anyone can make themselves be as curious as da Vinci, but we can make ourselves more curious by looking at his example. The next is, and this is something that Walter Isaacson highlights in a really beautiful way, is how Leonardo combined observation and fantasy. So Isaacson writes, and this is in his very good biography, simply titled Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, he writes, Leonardo was one of history's most disciplined observers of nature, but his observation skills colluded with rather than conflicted with his imaginative skills. Okay. I like the way he phrases that his disciplined observations colluded with his imaginative skills. So in other words, he wasn't just a keen observer of nature of things as they existed, but he had a great imagination as well. And he was able to think up things that didn't exist and he was able to combine them. And I think that both of those things made the other one stronger. I brought up the example of Pixar and talked about how people who are focused on the technical details are also able to create some of the most creative and soulful art. And I think that's getting at the same thing. Observation and imagination are not mutually exclusive and actually uh, they help to reinforce each other. And so I think the lesson is if you're someone who works in the field of fantasy, if you are maybe, um, a writer or an artist, then it helps to also get grounded in observation, to learn more about things as they actually are. And if you're someone who works in the field of things as they actually are, if maybe you're an engineer, then it can actually help to dip your toes in the world of fantasy, of imagination, of fiction, of things like that. And then the last thing I'll say is Isaacson has a great line in his biography. He says, obsession is a component of genius. I would take that even further. I would say that obsession is the largest component of genius, the most important part. 
And so it's easy to look at the life of Leonardo and say, man, he did some great things, but it's a real waste that he wasn't able to complete more of his work. Imagine what he could have done if he was more disciplined about finishing things. But I don't think it works that way. Leonardo was as great as he was in part because he ruthlessly followed his obsession. And if that meant that he lost interest halfway, then so be it. And I think that is my biggest takeaway so far. Follow your obsession, no matter the cost. Okay, that does it for this episode. Tune in next time to hear more about Leonardo da Vinci. Give me a follow on Twitter at Ben Wilson Tweets. And please, if you like this episode, share it with a friend. More than anything, sharing the show uh, is what helps me the most. So please do it. And thank you very much to all those of you who are already sharing the show. I really appreciate it. This episode was written and produced by me, Ben Wilson, with editing and sound design from Ezra Backer Truppiano. So that's it. Until next time, thank you for listening to How to Take Over the World.